I ended up finding this guy who was very passionate about PBR. He literally got in my face and yelled at me and said, if I overmarketed this brand, he was out of there. And then he ripped off his shirt and he had a massive PBR tattoo on his back. And I was like, all right, yeah, we've got something here. Hello, this is Owen Bennett-Jones. Welcome to Make or Break, where I speak to remarkable people who reached a moment where they just had to make up their mind. With guests spanning from across the business world, we'll unpack those critical moments and explore how these CEOs and entrepreneurs managed uncertainty. My guest today is Neil Stewart, who 20 years ago found himself in a somewhat unenviable position. He was brand manager for Pabst Blue Ribbon. It was a low-cost lager that had been on American shelves for more than a century and had been in decline for decades. Look at the creamy head. See the clear color. Sniff that fragrant blue ribbon blend. What do you have? Pabst Blue Ribbon. Things had actually got so bad that the company had to outsource their brewing. So PBR was just a label and a not very successful one at that. They were low on money and out of ideas. But then in 2001, the brand started to show unexpected signs of life. Sales spiked in the US state of Oregon and no one at the company could really figure out why. Neil Stewart was dispatched to find out what was going on. And that trip led to some startling conclusions. Just a good, honest logger, yeah. you know, with no pretense. Not everybody gets it, but you don't want everybody to get it. You don't necessarily want everybody to like and ruin, you know, your little thing that you have going. You know, people like to think they drink it because they want to drink it, not because people tell them they need to drink it to be cool. In the movie Blue Velvet, Dennis Hopper says, Neil Stewart had a decision to make. Stick with the tried and tested marketing methods or rip up the rulebook and throw in his lot with a bunch of punks, artists and, weirdly enough, bike messengers. Neil Stewart, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. And just tell us, first of all, how bad was it with, with the company when the sales were declining? What was going on? Well, the, the sales had declined uh, about 90% over the course of, I think, 23 years. So in the late 1970s, Pabst was a pretty massive brand. It was around 23 million barrels of beer. And just to put that in context, a barrel of beer is about 13 and a half cases of beer of 12 ounce, 24 cans. Uh, and then in 2001, it reached rock bottom at 872,000 barrels. So 23 million down to 872,000. And at that time, the company was really in, in dire straits. Uh, the, the company had a, a, a wide portfolio of brands, and most, if not all, actually, were in significant double-digit decline. And so Pabst was a brand uh, that was fairly uh, non-existent on shelves and had become uh, forgotten by many consumers. And, and do you have an explanation for that? Why, why were the sales declining so fast? Uh, the brand, I would say, was part of what we call a milk strategy. So at that point in time, the company was not significantly investing in it and had not invested in it for quite some time. In the early 1980s, Pabst implemented uh, a strategy that was really based on price. So they lowered the price from you know normal pricing of beer, competitive with many other brands, to what they called popular pricing. Uh, these days, we call it sub-premium pricing. 
And that really took a lot of the equity out of the brand. It became over years, and it didn't happen overnight, but over years, it became recognized as a cheap, um, low-quality beer. And during the 1980s, light beer in the United States really came to to be the, the leader within the entire beer category. And Pabst was never able to really crack the code on getting active in light beer. So um, lower pricing, you know, eroding equity, and um, and then just lower visibility and awareness amongst consumers. So really the focus of the company in the late 90s and early 2000s was more about fixing the financials rather than growing the top line. And so people working in the company were, I mean, what did you feel? Were you glad to work there? I was at the time, you know, I was fairly early in my career and it was a really small company. So me being kind of a, a new person within our marketing department, I knew that it was giving me the opportunity to be involved in a lot of different projects and a lot of different decisions. So I saw it as great experience. So yeah, I was very happy to work there when I got the job in, in let's see, August of 2000. And what about your colleagues? Uh, I would say overall, the, the culture was not strong. Um, the, the, the company had been declining for quite some time. So there was there was a culture of uh, accepting declining sales. Um, there was a culture of kind of uh, employees being disgruntled, knowing that the the company was constantly for sale and and change was the only constant. We we had a little bit of a rotating door of of executives for a while. Um, we had a, a really hard time holding on to marketing people, which is part of the reason why I, I think I progressed through the company. I was the one that stuck around, so. Yeah, turnover was high, morale was low. Um, when when you have overall trends a- across the entire company that are in decline and no one is getting a bonus, that tends to erode the, the morale. So what kind of marketing tactics were PBR typically using at this time? At that point in time, we were what we called a very sales-driven company. The sales team really dictated the marketing tactics. And as a result of that, the the marketing tactics for PBR were very disjointed across the entire country. So in the southeast part of the country, where NASCAR is really big, we sponsored uh, a lower tier NASCAR. In the northwest part of the country, where uh, fishing is is more of a, 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 a an activity, we we sponsored different fishing events. So. This was in the age before the internet where people could say, all right, hey, what's going on here, Paps? You're doing a bunch of different things. But still, it was very fragmented in, in how we went to market. Okay, so sales are down across the board and marketing strategy a bit fragmented, not very effective. But then, out of nowhere, sales spiked in Oregon, which is northwest United States, right? Trendy, trendy part of the country. It is. What was happening there? Yeah, we became aware of this sales spike happening specifically in Portland, Oregon, which, uh, yeah, is a, is a trendy part of the country. We became aware of it because we had a salesperson based in that market. And, you know, he, he started reporting numbers that were, you know, 80% increase month after month. And this salesperson said, you know, this is not the, the typical PBR consumer that we've been seeing, which was an older consumer. And so our marketing director sent me up there to, to check it out. And I ended up spending a couple of days in the market. And we, we visited a bar called the Ash Street Saloon, which was a bar in downtown Portland and around happy hour every day. It was frequented by bike messengers. 
that uh, were, you know, couriers around the entire city of Portland. And the bike messengers had very much their own defined subculture. You know, they were very anti-establishment. They liked being bike messengers because they didn't have a boss. You know, they were, uh, you know, uh, heavily tattooed people that, you know, listened to punk rock music just to kind of paint the picture for, for the type of people that were bike messengers at that time. And very loyal to Pabst Blue Ribbon. That's all they drank every day. Every day after work, they were there drinking PBR. So I, I arrived at this, this bar and started talking to them and, you know, tried to understand what it was about PBR that was appealing to them. And what I found was that it was everything that the other brands were not. So they liked PBR because it didn't advertise. So the fact that we didn't have a large marketing budget at that point in time was an advantage with this particular consumer. Uh, the other thing that they said quite commonly was that um, they drank PBR as a tribute to their grandfather. So their dad was the light beer drinker that kind of came to prominence in the 1980s. So they were drinking something that was relevant to their grandfather, and they remembered their grandfather drinking PBR. The reason people like our age like Pabst is because Pabst was your grandpa's beer. Budweiser or Coors was your dad's beer. You don't want to do anything that your dad does. That wouldn't be cool. I don't know what makes Budweiser and Coors Light suck. You know, it's out there in your face constantly. Right. I drink pop because it tastes good. My grandparents drink it. First beer I stole from my parents when I was 12 years old, you know? i got to say, that's quite an unusual collection of thoughts. I mean, they were enjoying it because it wasn't advertised and because their granddads had it. Yeah, yeah. And... I ended up finding this guy who was very passionate about PBR. And I mean, he literally got in my face and was yelling at me, you know, because he knew my job. He knew that I was brand manager for the brand. And he literally got in my face and yelled at me and said, if I overmarketed this brand, he was out of there. And then he ripped off his shirt and he had a massive PBR tattoo on his back. His entire back was a PBR logo. And at that moment, I was like, all right, yeah, we've got something here. Um, we just need to better understand it. Gosh, that's quite a challenging thought. Uh, you've got a, a tattooed bike riding punk who's saying, <laughs> saying, don't you interfere with my love of my beer. And so what did you do next? So uh, I had several beers with these guys. <laughs> and um, after several beers, they kind of built up their confidence. And they, they I remember a group of them walking over to me and saying, Hey, um, so we, we have this bike messenger race that's happening in a few months. Would you be interested in sponsoring it? And that was their sales pitch. And I said, okay, sure. But, uh, you know, well, how much are you talking about? And they had no idea how much to ask for from me. So they just kind of made up a number on the spot and they said $2,500. And, you know, at that point in time, I didn't have the, the latitude within my job to just approve that on the spot. So I said, all right, let me check into this. And I'll get back to you. So we exchanged information. I went back to San Antonio. We, we had a sales meeting not too long after that. And I presented this idea at our sales meeting, you know, with, with all of our lead salespeople and our executives. And I said, hey, so, you know, I had this really interesting experience. And I think I'm, I'm starting to learn what's happening in Portland. Because everyone in that meeting knew that Portland was, was an anomaly versus the rest of the country. And they said, okay, so what is it? I said, well, I want to sponsor a bike messenger race. And no one had any clue of what that was. And to be quite honest, I don't even know if I knew what it was at that time. And they said, well, how much is it? And I said, well, it's $2,500. And they pretty much laughed at me. And so at that point in time, our marketing director, 
he allowed each person in the marketing department to kind of have their own individual, what I would call slush fund. You know, here's $10,000. You do what you think is right for the business. You know, no questions asked. So I used that part of my slush fund to sponsor this bike messenger race. I went back up to Portland for the race and interacted with all these people during the race. I ended up shooting a a video with my camcorder at the time to document it, to show that there was some value to this. And what I learned through that process was that these bike messengers were just one subculture of many that were adopting PBR at that time. So there were bike messengers, there was the tattoo scene, there was the indie rock scene, there were um, artists. So all of these different subcultures, they were gravitating to the brand for all the same reason, because of what it wasn't, how it was marketed or lack thereof versus the competition. But that's so challenging for you. It's a paradox. You're being asked to make a sales strategy on the basis of it must, there must be no strategy. Right, right. There ended up being a, a, a New York Times article in uh, 2003. And the headline of the article was the marketing of no marketing. And I think that's probably the best articulation of, of the strategy at that time. We were challenged with marketing to a, a group of consumers, but not letting them know that we were on to them. And the salesperson who was in that market, he did something that was exactly right. When PBR started to really take off, he invested in neon signs and every bar that would serve Pabst, he, he, he went in there and he said, hey, I'll give you one of our neon signs. And, and Pabst has this very classic sign. It's just a ribbon that says the word Pabst in it. They cost about $80 at the time. And he gave every one of those bars a neon sign. So as you would drive through the city, you would see these neon signs everywhere. They're in windows in every bar. In, in the mindset of that consumer who didn't want to be marketed to, that was suitable to them. They, that was acceptable. That was not overt marketing. They, they liked it, actually. And it became, that neon sign kind of became a beacon for what kind of bar that was. You know, you were either a PBR bar or you were not. That was something he did to really push this, this momentum forward. Did you see a sales increase as a result of sponsoring the bike race? I don't, I don't know if we could say that we saw a direct correlation between sponsoring the bike messenger race and sales increasing in Portland. But what I can say is that attending the bike messenger race and networking with those people, you know, as we call them consumers, it led to more opportunities. So I had people from San Francisco who had traveled from San Francisco to Portland to participate in this event. They reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to sponsor one in San Francisco? Same thing from Seattle. Actually, people from Chicago were there. And that's how I started to build my network of consumers. And really what I tried to do at that point was just kind of scale our efforts. And when people from San Francisco or Seattle would reach out to me and say, hey, I've got a bike messenger race, or it might be an art gallery opening. You know, it was it was various different subcultures, and I would sponsor those events. And I would, I would primarily do that by just giving them beer. So, you know, they would say, hey, would you like to sponsor my event? Hey, yeah, sure. Uh, how many people are going to be there? Oh, we're going to have about 200 people. Okay, well, then I'm going to give you, you know, 20 cases of beer. Is that good? And they loved it. So, again, that was suitable marketing efforts. That was not offensive to them. That was just us 
participating in their culture and being a champion of their culture. <laughs> You're literally giving the stuff away. <laughs> <laughs> we were, we were, <laughs> yeah, we were, we were giving it away. I mean, yeah, I, I had a sizable budget for free beer, but you know, a case of PBR, it, it cost me about $10. You know, that was, that was what we had built into the, the cost of the beer. I, I had a formula on how much beer I should give each sponsorship. It ended up being an average of two beers per person. And so I saw it as, all right, it's 10 bucks a case, but getting cans of beer into the right people's hands was, was the marketing strategy. Because then these people, I saw them as influencers. They were trendsetters within their market. And if I could have the right people drinking our beer and then other people who kind of look to them for the trend setting, if they say, hmm, well, that person's drinking PBR, maybe I should give it a try. That was really the approach. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast and feel inspired by some of the leaders you're hearing make tough decisions in make or break situations, you may want to equip yourself with the skills and capabilities to make your own difficult decisions. If so, the Open University's micro-credential, Management of Uncertainty, Leadership, Decisions and Actions is designed for you. Visit openuniversity.co.uk forward slash management to find out more. Neil Stewart was very early onto the power of influencers. After all, the term didn't even make it into the dictionary until 2019. And his ideas worked, but they weren't easy for other brands to replicate. And as for Pabst, they needed to keep the buzz going. There was considerable pushback from colleagues within Pabst. They wondered how sponsoring a small art exhibition could ever compete with large-scale events such as NASCAR rallies, baseball games, and other all-American pastimes. The, the strategy of marketing to dozens of people at, at a time didn't make sense to them. To them, it was more about, you know, traditional marketing tactics that reach thousands or millions of people at a time. I totally get that. It's just that every brand requires its own customized strategy, and this was the right move for Pabst at the time. The other thing that I heard quite often, specifically from our sales team, was Hey, Neil, you know, I'm in the business of selling beer, not giving beer away. I don't understand how giving beer away is going to lead to increased sales. You know, if we give beer away, no one's going to buy it. You know, when, when we implemented this tactic of, of sponsoring these events by providing free beer, there were other brands within the industry that tried the same thing. And quite honestly, it didn't work for them. I think the difference for us was that those subcultures, those groups of consumers were approaching us and asking for us to participate in, in their event or their sponsorship rather than us proactively going out there and saying, hey, can we sponsor something? Can we be a part of your event? When it's, when it's from the, the ground up, from consumers, there's a very different level of authenticity that comes with it. Right. So, you know, that team of people who I originally presented the bike messenger race to, over the course of time, they became believers in, in how we approached the marketing of this brand. And I think the, the, one of the, the important things that I did was I, I was into videography at that time. I took my camcorder with me 
I shot my own amateur video. I came home, I did some editing, you know, on my computer, and then I shared that video with everyone else. And then everyone got a chance to see consumers interacting with the brand. And it made it real. If it was just me saying, hey, this this event was awesome. Let me write up a one-page report and share it with everyone. It doesn't make it real to those people. But when people see consumers drinking the brand in the beer industry, there's nothing more redeeming than seeing people drink your brand. You know, like we, we probably over romanticize that in our industry. And so people seeing these younger hipster consumers drinking our brand that gave them hope that we could evolve from this, this brand that was marketing to retirees to a brand that could be a, a young brand again. And we all know in in beer, I mean, I'm sure this is just intuitive to all of your listeners, but, you know, younger people drink more. So we knew that the brand at some point had to get younger because the consumers that we were currently marketing to were getting older, consuming less, and eventually dying. So making it real for people was really important. It's quite subtle, isn't it? It had to be really subtle. You know, even at, at the time, the brand didn't didn't have a website. <laughs> and, you know, this is like 2004 when we finally built a website. And at the time I was like, you know, we can't make this website too polished because then our consumers are going to catch on to us. I wanted the website to almost look like this was just humble old Pabst, you know, trying to get in the age of the internet and catch up. So we we, we purposely made our website a little bit clunky. Can I offer to you the thought that journalists are often accused of being cynical, but you just out-cynicized any journalist (laughs) by by pretending, having a corporation that is pretending to be folksy when it's anything but? Well, I, you know, I think there there was a a bit of folksiness to us. Um, The the reality is we were far outgunned in terms of marketing dollars versus our competition. You you know, I I don't know what the, the competition's marketing budget was, but it had to be you know, a hundred to a thousand times larger than ours. We, we didn't really have the money to do big advertising campaigns. We, we didn't have the money to launch, um, you know, a, a big massive TV ad. We probably didn't have the money to just produce a TV spot. So there, there was a little bit of um, necessity behind this strategy. One question I have is, you established this beer could be popular with hipsters in places like Portland and even San Francisco. But what about other places which had a slightly different atmosphere, less cool places, if you like? So there was a point in time where we were one of the top three fastest growing brands. If you just took a snapshot of the top 50 brands in in, uh, the United States, things were looking up. People were believing in this. There was excitement around the brand. Portland evolved into San Francisco, Seattle, Denver, Chicago, New York, more of your urban centers where trends catch on faster, but in markets like Omaha, <laughs> Nebraska, it, it it had not caught on yet. And I ended up writing this internal guide, I'll call it, you know, a very small book on how to market PBR. And we gave that to all of our distributors around the country. And part of that was to, to convince distributors in parts of the country where the brand had not caught on yet, that this was a brand that could work in every market around the country. 
if if we didn't get our distributors on board and get them to participate in the brand and and believe in the brand, then it really wouldn't go anywhere. Um, our all of our marketing and sales efforts fall flat unless our distributors believe in the approach and the strategy. I traveled around to all of these these different markets and I interviewed people who were believers in the brand, and I interviewed them. I, I included them in this video that I sent out to all of our distributors. So when our distributors saw people like bartenders or peers within their industry talking about the brand and the opportunity that it presented, that got them to believe in it more. It wasn't me as the brand manager who, you know, I have an obvious agenda, you know, so I'm not as believable as people who are their peers in the industry. But when they saw those people talking about it, it made them believers much more so. And over time, when you know I, I sent out that book on how to market PBR, I sent out a video on how to market PBR. That was one of the really, that was kind of like the second big changing point when we were able to convince distributors across the country that there was an opportunity. And getting those distributors on board and showing them that they can make money off of this and that they have you know, a diamond in the rough in, within their portfolio that can grow share within their market was very appealing to them. And, you know, from that that bottom of 872,000 barrels over the next five years, we were able to double the business. And I ended up leaving the company in 2006 and the brand continued to grow after that. It's an amazing uh, story, and it, it shows you the power of marketing, and it, it sort of you know, has a happy ending for you. You, you obviously, you know, made a name for yourself doing this. But how transferable is it? C- can the methods you worked out be used for other beer companies, or was it was that it? I uh, I, I would say that one thing I learned after leaving Pabst was that the strategy we implemented for PBR does not work for other brands. You 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 can't just replicate it. Um, so I, I went on after leaving Pabst, I went on to a career primarily within the craft beer industry. And, you know, around the time that PBR was really blowing up, craft beer was starting to emerge in this country. And I've worked primarily in that segment of beer since then. And uh, the, the brewery that I worked for directly after Pabst, I tried a lot of the same tactics and it didn't work. So I think what, what, I would encourage all marketers to to really have a a, a tight understanding of is what is the insight that is most important to your brand? The reason that consumers were gravitating to PBR was because they were rejecting the notions and the marketing of other brands. And PBR just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And then we nurtured that kind of consumer up marketing approach. We, We always championed all of the different subcultures that took an interest in the brand rather than marketing at them. So that was the critical insight for PBR. It's different for every brand. Um, Even brands that are very similar to PBR, they tried to activate the same insight and it didn't work. And, you know, then specifically within the craft beer segment, uh, like I said, I learned very quickly that it didn't work there either. Right, and I presume that craft beers are much more expensive, so that would be one big difference. That, that you- yeah, that, no, that's that's a huge difference. So when it comes to you know giving away beer for different events, the 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 cost to the marketing budget is probably twice as much. It's it's probably yeah, it's over twenty dollars if I was to donate cases of beer rather than PBR being ten dollars. 
So yeah, no, that, that that's a great point. Um, the price point is very different. The consumer mindset is very different. The consumption behaviors and occasions are very different. Let's get a bit more on the lessons you learned. You learned that your tactics couldn't work for all brands in the, in the beer market. But I guess another lesson that occurs to me is that the manager who gave you that slush fund, as you put it, a budget which you could spend, was, was quite clever because that empowered you, actually. That's a great point, too. Yeah, that, that person who was uh, the, the marketing director at Pabst for that time, I only worked with him maybe for a year and a half, two years. But to this day, I really think of that person as a mentor in, in my career. I haven't talked to that person in a long time. But I think of that person as a mentor in terms of how he managed. And he really empowered me and the rest of his team. So it was, it was a small gesture to, to give us, like I said, I don't think we called it that, but to, to give us that slush fund and, and let us do what we thought was right for the business. Um, but he also did a variety of other things that I think just instilled confidence in me as a, as a younger person in my career and a young marketer um, that I think motivated me to, to work harder. And uh, I, I often think about the style of how he managed me at that time, and I, I try to implement that today. So if I were to ask you to summarize these thoughts, what single piece of advice would you give to someone starting out in the, in the marketing world that you now know so well? The, the obvious answer would be know your consumer intimately. Know everything about them. And that was something that I did just kind of intuitively at that time. I got out into the market and I talked to consumers personally. I didn't hire a research firm to go out and do it. I did it myself. So, But I, th I think that's a little bit too much of an obvious answer. I think the, the answer that's kind of below the surface is find a way to share those insights with all of the different people and stakeholders that you work with. And don't just put that insight on a PowerPoint slide and call it good. Make it real to all of those people. Make them understand that insight wholeheartedly. And if you do that, you're going to get a lot more consensus from your team. You're going to get a lot more trust from your team. And that's what's going to earn you that autonomy to do more of what you think is right. Neil Stewart, thank you very much for telling us about your make or break decision. Thank you. I enjoyed it. This podcast is brought to you by Radio Wolfgang for Audi. It was presented by me, Owen Bennett-Jones, and it featured Neil Stewart. It was produced by John Joe Devlin, with editing by Eli Block. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino, with support from The Open University. <laughs> <laughs>